0: You're listening to Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media, the publisher of acowatch.com, and your Pop Health Week co-host with my partner co-founder, Fred Goldstein, President of Accountable Health, LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm. While I often use the expression special when referring to the guests we routinely interview on Pop Health Week, today the word doesn't come remotely close to recognizing the contributions of this man. This is our third occasion to speak with this dedicated public servant, national leader and steward of U.S. healthcare resources, and committed practitioner of the healing arts. Our first encounter with Secretary Shulkin was in 2018, just prior to his abrupt termination as Secretary of the VA. At the Population Health Colloquium in Philadelphia, curated by Dr. David Nash, then Dean of the Jefferson College of Population Health, our second opportunity to chat with the Secretary was at the World Healthcare Congress in 2019 in Washington, D.C., courtesy of our colleague and co-host Nick Vanderhayden, M.D., also known as Dr. Nick. So today we are indeed privileged to again speak with Secretary Shulkin. David Jonathan Shulkin is an American physician and former government official. In 2017, Shulkin became the ninth United States Secretary of Veterans Affairs and served under President Donald Trump. Before assuming the top spot at the VA, Shulkin served as the Undersecretary of Veterans Affairs for Health from 2015 until 2017, appointed by President Barack Obama. On March 28, 2018, President Trump, in his usual style, dismissed Shulkin from his position by tweet. Since leaving office and returning to his life in the private sector, Secretary Shulkin has authored a book chronicling his time at the VA. And just today, his publisher has released this previously embargoed title, It Shouldn't Be This Hard to Serve Your Country, Our Broken Government, and the Plight of Veterans. So, Fred, over to you. Help us get to know Secretary Shulkin and what he's chronicled in this just-released book. Thank you very much, Greg, and Secretary Shulkin, welcome to Pop Health Week. Glad to be
1: here.
2: Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, Thank you so much for joining, and I thoroughly enjoyed your recently released book, It Shouldn't Be This Hard to Serve Your Country, Our Broken Government and the Plight of Veterans. But before we get into the book, could you discuss a little bit of your background and the path that led you to working at the VA?
1: Sure. I always start with who I define myself as besides a father and a husband and a a good human being. I describe myself as a physician, and so my professional grounding is as a doctor and I've always thoroughly enjoyed that, but I spent most of my career, in addition to being able to practice medicine, as a healthcare executive, and so I took specialized training in healthcare management at the University of Pennsylvania, and then came one of the country's first chief medical officers, where I spent a decade at the University of Pennsylvania as their chief medical officer, uh, and did a variety of things working at other health systems, um, leading up to becoming the president and CEO at Beth Israel in New York City, and then went on to lead a hospital system in New Jersey called Morristown And from there, I was fortunate enough to be given the opportunity to serve in the Obama administration, and then finally in the Trump administration.
2: What sort of led you to write this book?
1: I thought hard about the reason why I entered government in the first place, and the reason why I decided to leave as a CEO of a health system and move to Washington and take the both the reputational risks, but also the financial reduction, was because I felt strongly about two things. and They're the reasons why I wrote the book. The first is I feel strongly about the duty of public service and when your country needs you, especially being so fortunate to have grown up in such a great country, and if you can contribute and have the skills and competence to be able to help, I didn't feel like I could say no. So, I feel strongly about public service. I know many people, including many of your listeners, do as well. And then, secondly, I felt very strongly about helping improve the system for caring for our veterans. Watching what has happened to many of our veterans if they've, as they've returned from some of the recent conflicts and having trained in several VAs myself in my medical training, I feel that these are people that deserve the very best that our country can offer. And reading in the papers, as many of us do, as I was doing at the time, about the wait time crisis and the veterans that weren't able to get access to the care they needed, I felt that maybe I could help. And so when I went into government, it was for those two reasons. When I left government, I felt as strongly as ever about those two reasons. And I felt that I had found the formula for actually beginning to fix many of the problems in the VA that had sustained that system for decades and was really making. Significant progress. And secondly, that my experience in public service was both a very positive one in terms of the mission and being able to make a difference but a very negative one in terms of what it puts you and your family through and personal sacrifices that one has to make these days in order to serve their country. And so I really wanted to write the book for the reasons of sharing what a great system the VA truly is, why it's an essential national resource and how we can fix it. And secondly, to try to get public service back to a place where It should be where people feel comfortable, where they want to go and serve their country and where where they have the ability to contribute the best to help their fellow citizens.
2: You said you found the formula for making progress. What are some of the things you accomplished during your time there that you were most proud of?
1: First of all, everything everything that I accomplished was certainly not my accomplishment alone. There's 370,000 dedicated people who work in the VA every day, and I work closely with members of Congress and the administration and the veterans groups all to accomplish it. But I think I would probably start by answering that question, Fred, by the burning platform in which I entered government in 2015 uh, under the Obama administration where there was a wait time crisis. When I entered government, there were 350,000 veterans waiting for care more than 30 days and 57,000 of those waiting more than 30 days had urgent healthcare problems. So we established same-day services in every VA medical center across the country so veterans wouldn't have to wait for urgent care. We dramatically expanded our use of telehealth to be able to reach veterans who live in rural areas where 40, 45% of all veterans live in rural areas. We posted publicly our wait times. Still, the VA is the only system in this country that I'm aware of that publicly posts its wait times so people can view them and understand where waits are and how the improvements are happening. And finally, we expanded the use of private sector healthcare. When I entered the Obama administration, we were at about 19% of veterans getting their care outside of VA in the private sector. When I left, that was up to 36%. And so we really tried to create a system that met the needs of the veterans. And I I think that was one of the most important things that we could do because veterans shouldn't be waiting for healthcare.
2: Yeah, I know it was a critical issue, obviously all over the press at the time that occurred. And and as you said, there've been major improvements in that. Some other areas you worked on that are not just VA areas, but obviously critical to the VA, as well as the populace in the United States at large include the, the hep C issues and mental health. Can you discuss what you did around those, particularly hep C, your focus on that?
1: The real superpower of the VA system is, is that our patients, our veterans, are with us for life after they leave the service. It really is a true population health model. And so since everybody's on a common electronic record, I was able to ask the question, how many veterans do we have that have hepatitis C, who have a lab test that shows that they have a positive serology for hepatitis C? And the answer came back almost immediately, 163,000. And so I asked the question, and then that became a mandate of mine, that I felt that no veteran should have hepatitis C now that we have drugs that are able to cure the virus at a 95% or, or above level. And so I gave a mandate that we would eliminate hepatitis C among the entire veteran population. The only problem was was that it's a very expensive drug, and I didn't have the budget to do it. So I went to Congress, and I asked them for a billion and a half dollars to be able to do it, and told them why, and they gave me the money. So now it was back on us. And we started with a very effective outreach program where we would contact people, bring them in. We trained our pharmacists and, and uh, other healthcare professionals to be able to do this work, and We have now treated well over 100,000 of those veterans, completely eliminated their hepatitis and on the way to being able to completely eliminate it from the veteran population. And I think that's a really important example of the way that health systems and integrated providers can look at problems, reach out to those that they serve, and be able to do good work. And so I hope that's an example that others will begin to follow.
2: Yeah, it really makes sense. Go ahead.
1: Uh, I was just going to transition to the mental health issue, probably the most significant issue for me when I was secretary. I declared that our top clinical priority would be to reduce or eliminate suicide among veterans, uh, something that was happening 20 times a day. Still, just last week, the data came out and there's not been a decline. In fact, in fact there's actually been an increase in the number of suicides happening every day among veterans. And so being able to provide mental health services is critically important. 60% of the 9.1 million veterans that are cared for in the VA system have a diagnosis or comorbidity that's a mental health diagnosis. And so uh, the VA system is the largest behavioral health care system in the country and has done some things really well that I think can be learned from. One is the integration of behavioral health with primary care so that there's not separate facilities that you need to go to and separate teams, the mental health teams and the primary care teams work together. And I think that is very effective. And the reason it doesn't happen in the private sector is more of a reimbursement reason rather than the effectiveness of the clinical model. So the BA does that extremely well, but we needed to do a lot more. And so we we started to work very effectively at predictive analytics, being able to use a tool that the VA researchers worked on called Vet, where they're able to use data to look at patients at the highest risk for suicide. And then, I mean, just like the hepatitis model, we started outreach programs. We started proactively calling those veterans that were at higher risk, bringing them in, trying to identify issues that we could help to prevent suicide or, or decline in their, in their mental health. And most importantly, we've begun to really do outreach with community providers and bring in organizations, whether they're veterans organizations or churches or community groups and homeless shelters and state governments and local governments, all to work effectively in an integrated way to try to help really impact
2: the mental health problems. You you were doing all of these things and brought quite a bit of change to the VA and talked about decentralizing some of it, etc. At the same time, it just kind of stunned me the whole political surrounding this, including, you know, my father was a a physician, volunteered to go to Vietnam. and, And in his later years, the VFW was a really important thing to him. And it really meant a lot and helped him. I was surprised to learn that from your book that some of these organizations maybe serve more as political fronts, and you mentioned that with the uh, Koch brothers and and one of them. Could you talk about the various veteran service organizations and how they interacted with you in the agency?
1: Yeah, uh, many people m- may not know there are a large number of veteran service organizations that are made up with their membership of veterans, just like your father and my father. And they, to me, were extremely important groups to represent the veterans so that I could do my job better. Myself not being a veteran, I probably relied upon the veteran service organizations to help advise and guide me maybe more than other secretaries had in the past. And while all these organizations, many of them with offices based in Washington, have effective arms that go out and lobby Congress and the administration for funds for veterans and to support legislation, primarily they are just made up of veterans that are able to be good-sounding boards and to be able to provide advice on policy issues related to VA. And so I had a very good and strong relationship with them. The one exception was the group that you mentioned. It's a group called Concerned Veterans of America. It's funded solely by the Koch brothers. And in fact, they do not have a large membership of veterans. They're really set up as a political lobbying organization and they have an agenda. Their agenda being that As the Koch brothers in their political activities often support, that government should not be involved in the direct delivery of services. It's more of a libertarian point of view. And in fact, I don't ever mind having discussions or dialogue with organizations that don't necessarily agree with me. I think you have to be open to hearing people's differences and new ideas. And so I didn't have a problem with the fact that they were advocating a certain point of view and in fact in some cases i think that they were advocating effective reforms but they were quite effective at lobbying and particularly in the trump administration they got a very big seat at the table and a bigger voice than necessarily some of the other veterans groups that truly represented what the veterans wanted and so we um we were at odds over the issue of privatization of the VA. I did not think that was in the veterans' interest. I didn't think veterans wanted that. And the Koch brothers political body, you know, was was advocating for faster movement towards reducing government's involvement. And so there were some political manipulations in that relationship between me and them that frankly I don't think ended up being productive for helping veterans get better care.
2: And you talked about, mentioned you'd gone from 19% to 36% use of of private services for VA members, but it just sort of stuck with me from your book and and knowing veterans, et cetera, that they do have unique issues that they face that aren't typically seen in a general employer-based population or Medicare, Medicaid, that would require more unique services through the VA. Isn't that the case? I think that's exactly
1: right. You've stated that very well. When I came into the VA, I already mentioned I came in from the private sector, running private healthcare organizations, and I had a bias to think that healthcare organizations in the private sector probably did things better than the VA. When when I came to the VA and I actually not only helped lead it, but I put on a white coat and took care of veterans myself so I could see it firsthand, I saw exactly what you said, which is that it's not that the VA does things better than the private sector. They do things that are different than the private sector. And when you deal with the complexity, we've already talked about the issues of behavioral health, but when you talk about the complexity and the specificity of some of the problems that veterans have coming back after conflict, the private sector just doesn't do that and they don't do it very well. And so I think what was so difficult for my time on the political environment in Washington was was that nobody could label me. I wasn't a person who was against moving care into the private sector where it made sense for veterans to get care in the private sector. And I certainly was not in favor of dismantling a system that was working well for veterans and that the private sector would not do. So I was a I had a hybrid model where I was trying to Put the veteran in the center and say, let's do what's best for the veteran. If it means that the private sector does the service better, that's where they should go. If it means that the VA provides a better service and a, and a different quality of service, then that's where the veteran should go. And so being in the middle right now in Washington is a very hard place to be because, as we all know, it's such a polarized environment. And if you don't have a very, very strong political point of view on things – you can sort of find yourself without a lot of without a lot of allies. And of course I wasn't in that role for a political reason. I wasn't running for office. I was there solely to try to do better for our veterans, which meant at times it was a very lonely job.
2: Yeah, the stories in here are just amazing. Unbelievable Secretary. And as part of that job, you discussed potentially looking at the need to change the VA structure and maybe make it unlike other departments by removing the political appointees and the four year appointment of the Secretary. Could you sort of walk us through that concept?
1: My greatest political challenge and probably my biggest surprise coming from being a private citizen in the government was the impact of what are called the political appointees. And each administration has about 4,500 political appointees. And these are people that are put into jobs. I was one of them where there's often the criteria of having a political loyalty to the candidate. Now, I was not a Obama guy. I was certainly not a Trump guy. I was just a private citizen. But often the political appointees come in after having some allegiance to the campaign and don't necessarily have the competence or the skill sets in the particular area where they're assigned. And I just don't think that's a system that works well for the direct delivery of services. I would think that many people would agree with me that if you're providing healthcare services to over 9 million people, you should probably have people running the agency that have experience in healthcare and a lot of experience of run big systems and know what they're doing. And so I think that we really do need to take a look at the system of putting in political appointees in charge of these organizations, and maybe in particular in some organizations that provide direct service delivery like the VA. And secondly, I think after my experience, I believe strongly that we need to free up the head of the VA, the secretary of the VA, from the political influences because veterans should not be involved in political issues. There are Democrats and there are Republicans who serve in our military and we need every segment of our society to feel comfortable in a volunteer military. So what I'm suggesting is quasi-protected Veterans Administration, where the secretary is given a term and not subject to the political whims of either the administration or Congress. And I'm also suggesting that the political appointees be replaced with professionals. And if one were to look towards a model, that would be similar. It might be a, a model that's similar like Amtrak or the post office, and there might be some some nuances to doing this particular for the VA so that there would be some greater uh, involvement of people who have served in the past in the military. But I think we can do better than what we have now, which is a rotating political door where the secretary and the undersecretary change roles every two years. So there's not continuity and not a vision for how we continue to fix this system. And just to give you one example, prior to being secretary, I was the undersecretary of the health administration. That's the position that runs the health component of the VA. I left that position in January of 2017 to, after I was nominated as secretary. That position today, as we speak, is still not filled. So it's a Senate confirmed position and it still remains open. And so therefore, this type of political rotation, I don't think, serves our veterans in the way that we owe it to them to to run an organization that should be serving them.
2: And one of the things you did that I thought was also interesting in terms of connecting sort of the political with the veterans was allowing congressional members, representatives to have offices in the VA that was located in their district. And I know that last month it was just announced that that's going to be pulled. Can you discuss that and your thoughts on allowing the uh, congressional representatives to office in the VA?
1: I think it's a mistake to pull that. Uh, the reason why I granted the ability for members of Congress to have an office at the VA is because when you speak to members of Congress, as I did almost on a daily basis, about their concerns about caring for veterans in their districts, they would say that more than 50% of their casework, of the issues that they're trying to resolve for their constituents, involved veteran issues. So they have staff that are dedicated to this. They are concerned about it. They feel strongly about it. And to be able to give them a space at the VA facility, first of all, it makes it easier for veterans to be able to connect with their elected representatives, and it gives the elected representatives a chance to be able to actually see what's happening so that they understand the complexity of situations sometimes when they happen, and they get a chance to actually meet and interact with the staff who are providing these services and see what I saw, which is an amazingly dedicated group of professionals who choose to work to serve veterans every day. The issue that you need to be concerned about that I had to make sure that we were clear about is is that the VA as a federal agency wasn't giving preference to one politician over another. Certainly that was not my intent. And so we had to make sure that all representatives have equal access to the office space and that there were no preferences and nobody had advantage over another, so it wasn't political. But we were able to do that and I thought that was a good program and obviously members of Congress who chose to take advantage of it, thought it was a good program too. The current administration has decided that they don't think that's something that they want to continue. And, and that certainly is their choice. And certainly if they need the room for clinical reasons, I can understand that. But I think the intent of working closer with Congress to do better for veterans is a good thing.
2: I'd like to ask you one uh, quick question. We've got a few minutes left on a story in your book in regards to your deputy, Tom Bowman, and uh, your in the rep- press reports of him being fired. And then you met with the president who said, uh, quote, you and I are the only ones who could fire your deputy. If neither of us are planning to, it can't be true. It can't be true, end quote. And then it came to pass. And I noticed throughout the book, you sort of separated whether the president or the rest of the politicos, et cetera, were doing these things. Do you think he was aware of that, or just it was just the politicos doing that kind of stuff?
1: This is a really, really excellent issue, and probably one of the central features of my book. The president is one person, it's a huge administration, a huge country to run. And so. These political appointees that I talk about, these 4,500, many of whom are there for the right reasons, but many who are off on their own political agendas can create a lot of turmoil in the organization. I think in the current administration under President Trump, he is not always aware of what is happening and the activities of these political appointees. He can't possibly know them all. I mean, there's 4,500 and they're off every day doing their jobs. So in the case of what you talked about, it was a, it's, it's described very well in the book. One day, we read a front page story in the Washington Post that my deputy, who was confirmed by the US Senate, was going to be fired by the president because he was not representing the political views of the president. And as you described, I was able to go and have lunch with the president that day of the story and asked him about it. He was completely unaware of that. And was aligned that that would be a choice that either he would have to make or me as secretary would have to make. So this was a story that was leaked. It was leaked for a specific purpose, to be able to send a message to both me and the deputy secretary that we better get in line politically with what these political appointees wanted to do. You know, they probably didn't think I'd have a chance to ask the president about it. So certainly in that case, he was not aware. But I do think that the political appointees do have great influence on many of the policies that we're seeing and on many of the areas of the country that many people see as confusing coming out of the White House, that there's different messages. Sometimes the president has a different message than other members of the White House team, and I, th- I think that that's a reflection of him not being aware of what's going on around him.
2: Well, I'd like to thank you, Secretary Shulkin, for, for having served, for actually the stories that you had to go through and your family had to go through were just fascinating and unfortunate, and for the work you did. And thank you so much for joining us here on Pop Health Week. Thank you, Frank. That'll turn it back over to you, Greg. And thank you, Fred.
0: That is the last word on today's broadcast. I want to thank Secretary Shulkin for his lifetime commitment to public service and the healing arts in particular, including his passion to serve the men and women of the United States military through the National Treasure of the Veterans Administration. For more information or to order Secretary Shulkin's exceptionally informative and timely piece, It Shouldn't Be This Hard to Serve Your Country, Our Broken Government, and the Plight of Veterans, see the link. Link in our program description at Pop Health Week or go to pophealthweek.com. For Pop Health Week, my colleague Fred Goldstein, the Honorable Secretary Shulkin, and Healthcare Now Radio, this is Greg Masters saying, Bye now.